Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bring you ideas and resources that will enhance your professional development plan. Well, I had a fantastic conversation this episode with Kate Coleman, who, along with her husband, wrote a fascinating book called Growing Fairly. And I think it's going to make you rethink all that you know about hiring and recruitment practices as a nonprofit leader. Now, Kate brings an impressive professional journey to this conversation and to her research and writing. She's been in the for-profit sector, so she understands that mindset. But she's also done strategic consulting at the national level for the YMCA. And she's even studied cross-sector collaboration at Harvard. So you're in for a treat And you're going to better understand what the term skilling means and how we can break down structural barriers for employment that affect every sector in our communities, including the nonprofit world. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 157. Just go to the podcast or the news blog at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find out all about the resources that were mentioned during our discussion as well as more information on Kate and the work she's doing in the workforce development space, and especially so you can get a copy of the book called Growing Fairly. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kate Markin Coleman. Kate, thank you for joining me on the path. It is my pleasure to be here, Patton. Well, indeed, I'm excited about this conversation. You and I have had conversations leading up to this episode, and you've done some fantastic research and writing, which we'll talk about, but you have also the benefit of experiences in many sectors, for-profit, non-profit. You're looking at things at a literally a global level, and and I'm excited to talk about that. You know, in particular, we're going to talk about your latest book called Growing Fairly which is a fantastic book. I'm going to recommend it to our listeners for sure. But why do you think this book is relevant in this day and time, uh, and particularly for nonprofit leaders? Well, so first of all, again, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm always happy to talk about growing fairly, but but also to speak to leaders in the, the sector that I called home for 15 years. So Growing Fairly is about how to construct a more equitable and effective workforce development system. And I'm going to tie this to nonprofits, but just a little context. We began the book before COVID and just just before COVID. And at that point, there were more job openings than there were people looking for jobs. Obviously, that changed during COVID But we're back to that situation today. So more job openings than people looking for jobs, which is why there's such a talent scramble in the labor market overall. Indeed. And and I think that's because, I mean, there are many reasons, but when I think about nonprofits, part of the problem is that the pipeline of talent is narrower than it needs to be. So one of the premises of the book is that we rely way too heavily on two and four year college degrees as a proxy for qualification. 
So if you think about qualifications instead of thinking just about degrees, but think about them in terms of skills, all of a sudden there's the potential to open the, the pipeline and, and get more people into it. So I'm gonna, and again, give me a moment. So take IBM. Yeah. IBM, Prudential, I think, Accenture, I think all of them are looking at their jobs and saying, which of these jobs really need a degree and which really need a certain set of skills? So this is the statistic I always love to share. 50% of IBM's job postings in North America no longer require a, a college degree. So if you think about that in terms of nonprofits and turnover and the lack of people who are being defined as appropriate for particular jobs, what if nonprofits began to think in terms of skills rather than simply degrees? All of a sudden, that opens the door to so many more people and, quite frankly, allows us to bring greater equity into our talent searches. So that's how I think it relates to the to the book that we've written. It's fantastic. And, and I am fascinated by this concept because you're right. My work in the nonprofit sector, we do in terms of a job announcement, we default to college degree required. And your point is, I think, a very appropriate reminder that do we have to do that in every case? In fact, I've been speaking recently to a woman who's a very talented nonprofit leader, but she didn't finish her college degree 20 years ago. And she would be, in essence, prevented from applying for many of uh, positions that she would be eminently qualified. And I guess that's exactly your point. Precisely. And, and the interesting thing, Patton, is that we that we don't sort of do a deep skills analysis. So for instance, someone may have a skill in a one sector, one sector or one job that in fact is applicable to a different sector and a different job. And so looking really kind of dissecting what the skill is in its essence allows us to think more broadly about who might be qualified. Yeah, I, well, we're gonna unpack that for sure, because okay. I think it has fascinating applications to every sector, as you point out, but certainly for the context of our audience, the nonprofit sector, this is a reminder for them to think about it more. But before we go further, Kate, maybe you bring multiple perspectives to your research and your writing and consulting now. Talk a little bit about your journey and how it has affected the work you're doing now. Yes. Yeah, so I, I began my career in the private sector. And the last thing that I did in the private sector was I was running with some colleagues, what would today be called a fintech firm. In those days, it, really, it didn't have that sexy nomenclature, <laughs> right. but that's what it was. We sold that company. And at that point, I, had, I knew, I always knew that I wanted to give back. And so we sold that company and um, that was the point I transitioned to the social sector. And so a team of us were brought in to turn around the Chicago Y, which was in pretty serious financial difficulty at that point. And 
in that process of turning around the Chicago Y, we absolutely categorically relied on business practices from the private sector. And right. I won't go into what those were, but but Patton, throughout my time in the in the social sector, I've applied um, business practices to the business of running a nonprofit and. And, you know, I think you can do so without compromising the mission and without being paternalistic. I, I really believe it. And you, it sounds like you experienced it directly with the why, right? That early experience demonstrated yes, that they, they needed a combination of the nonprofit mechanics, but also you brought for-profit skill and experience as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's and I, I honestly, I always use the functional skills I learned in the private sector when approaching a an issue or challenge in the social sector. I mean, I've done that throughout my career. Now, that isn't to say that you don't make adjustments. Absolutely, you do. And there was a period of transition for me when I had to learn how to operate in a new environment. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, Kate. If, were there some things that didn't exactly translate from the for-profit private sector to nonprofit. Any any surprises or nuances, uh, for example, yeah. when you were working yes. with the so, Y? Yes. So with a million apologies to the audience, <laughs> the, the biggest, the biggest uh, adjustment for me at first was what at the, what I initially called this mania for consensus. Every decision felt like it had to be made by every single person. Interesting. What I what I didn't understand, though, Patton, at that point, was that was really uh, a way of building team and cohesion in an environment that was constantly challenging. And so you need that cohesion and team sense to face the challenges that people in the sector face every day. Um, the other thing that I learned that was really important, well, two things more. One was that I that I adjusted the language that I used. I tried to learn how people heard what I was saying and, and learned how to say it in language they could not just understand, but they could feel comfortable with. Right. And then the the other thing is, um, and I don't know how to put this any better, but you you have to let go of your ego, I think, um, when you're in the sector, and especially, especially if you transition from business, because I don't know about you, but but I've seen too many philanthropists who have been really successful in the private sector, and they think because of that, they know the issues in the social sector. And that isn't the case. Could, so that checking the ego at the door was really important for me too. Thank you for lifting that up. In fact, I've run into many nonprofit leaders who have well-intentioned private sector, often board members maybe, that will come in. But they, in my opinion, sometimes, Kate, they try to steamroll the nonprofit leadership with, well, hey, I've done it at XYZ Business, therefore I know what I'm doing. And it it sounds like you were sensitive to translating your expertise and experience in a way that was a fit because I don't think yes. that always happens that way. Yeah. I, th I mean, translation, I think you hit the exact right word. That is what it's about. 
I suppose, I suppose more broadly in life too, but we won't go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'll be for another episode perhaps, yeah. but well, I'm fascinated too, with your experience at Harvard, the advanced leadership fellowship, you, you studied, I believe cross-sector collaboration. What is that and how might that apply to our discussion of nonprofit leadership? Um, so, so the Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard is possibly the most glorious indulgence ever. I've ever. <laughs> it's an no, interesting way to describe I'm, it. I like I'm, that. I'm, I'm absolutely serious. So it is a full year program where people, and I was a little bit of an oddball because I had already transitioned to the social sector, but it's for people who have been very successful in their careers and want to use that third phase, as it's sometimes called, to give back. Yep. And so yep. you spend a year at Harvard, you are allowed to take courses anywhere in the university where a professor gives you permission to audit that course. And you're also with this cohort of people who have made a decision that they're kind of not beyond their income earning years, but that's not their primary focus. Right. So talk about glorious. So it's like, Pat, it's like being in college, <laughs> except you're older and smarter. And so it, it was fabulous. Now, that that's the silly piece of me. No, that's not uh, silly. Good for you. But yeah, tell and, me what you did get things out of it, I'm so sure. As, as, as part of that, you begin to form a picture of what it is that you want to do next. And, yep. and for me, that picture was figuring out ways that I could at least contribute to the conversation of how do you improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the sector. Now, that sounds like, you know, boiling the ocean, right. and I didn't mean it to, but it's taken the form of research and writing. So the first book that I did was on how to use geospatial visualization, simply put data slapped on top of a map. We see them all the time yep. to improve cross-sector collaboration. And then the second book was the one that, that we were, we're going to talk about maybe a little later today on um, workforce development. But everything has required, listen, no one organization, no one agency, no one sector can solve the issues that we face as a society. It takes working together. And that's why my emphasis has been on cross-sector collaboration. Oh, I love that. And and but to to unpack that just a little bit. So the geos, geospatial analysis by mapping data that obviously helped communicate issues that communities are facing. Or tell me, how did that manifest itself in change or collaboration? So, right. So the, so it's really interesting, Pat. And so it's exactly what when you put data on a map. So think about a geographic area, and you're putting demographics and you're putting income and you're putting where different uh, uh, assets are in the community, call that nonprofits or whatever kind of community asset it might be. Group of people come to the table and they look at that data. Now I come to the table with my point of view, you come to the table with your point of view. Yep. In the process of our looking at that data, we have to negotiate between the two of us what it really means. 
that process of negotiation begins to build a bridge that creates the foundation for ultimately working together. On top of that, you and I see where things are in or are not, where gaps are in the community, but we also see where the interdependencies are. Once we recognize that we're dependent on one another, that's another foundation upon which you can build cooperation. So it's a process of negotiating meaning, of understanding where you're interdependent, and that allows you to come together around kind of shared understanding, which is a condition for adopting common goals and a common agenda. Yeah, I, well, I think it's fantastic. By the way, what was the name of your first book or that book that you're referring oh, to? Called Collaborative Cities. Okay, well, I want to add that to the reading list for this episode because <laughs> we'll talk about growing fairly. But what I'm I'm intrigued by there is that I think a lot of uh, particularly human services, social service, nonprofits, there's a complexity to their programming. And I think you make a great point that the visualization of how their data that they try to communicate perhaps through text could be better communicated through that illustration. And you're saying it literally facilitates conversation across the table, so to speak. Literally, and and now it's been a while since I wrote that book, so of course I can't remember the exact. <laughs> I won't quote you. Yeah, right. But the but the the we process information um, multiple so much faster visually, right? And we can um, we can absorb more things visually than we can in, in with text. So it speaks to how our brains really work, and it's a great shortcut. Now I'm I'm bog, bollocksing the uh, statistics, but well, suffice no, but- it to say we are we are visual. And also, if you think about it's it's also a human characteristic to sort of situate oneself in place. Right. Think about how often you do that. Once you situate yourself in a place, you situate others. Yes. And that's, again, what leads to this notion of interdependency. Well, it's a fantastic takeaway. I think, if nothing else, from this discussion so far for nonprofit leaders, how do you illustrate the important data that you need to share? And you are exactly right, Kate, that I think there are ways we can do that better. And so you explored it. Of course, today, and as we continue our conversation, we want to talk about your latest great work. And I know you spoke to scores of nonprofit leaders as part of your research for Growing Fairly, but maybe talk about, you know, what led you to write it. Perhaps it was part of that, those many discussions, and then we can talk about, you know, what sets successful organizations apart from those that are not. Yeah. So I wrote this book with my spouse. Um, we are still married. (laughs) (laughs) The project didn't, yeah, didn't hurt you there. Good. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, when we wrote it, and, and here's another thing to, to know, because it's really relevant in my mind. My spouse is an old school Republican, and I am a very liberal Democrat. So our <laughs> politics are quite different. Right. We had no disagreements on policy when we wrote this book. Interesting. Maybe on words, but none on policy. The reason that we wrote the book is we had we did collaborative cities together. So I, as I mentioned, 
before, when we started the book, there were more job openings than people looking for jobs. However, there were also a significant number of people who were unemployed, significant number of people who were out of the workforce, and literally tens of millions of people in low-income, low-wage jobs. So that struck us as really grossly unfair. So you have job openings, and you have people who want jobs, but they're not coming together. Right. And so what we set out to do was to identify programs and policies that would do a better job of skilling people for the jobs that were open, what are often called mid-skill jobs. So that's what got us on, on the road. Well, as, as you did that research, you and your husband on that front, uh, did you find, I guess, some success stories or did were any kind of aha moments as to, wow, none of these organizations seem to be understanding this concept that you're describing? No. So what happened was that we spoke to, as you said, hundreds of organizations. We spoke to the leaders of those organizations. We spoke to program staff. We spoke to people who had participated in the programs. Now, we set a bar, Pat, and we we only looked at programs that had some sort of third-party evaluation. It didn't have to be as fancy as a, as a, as a, uh, oh God, control trials, randomly controlled trial. Right, we didn't, right, right. It didn't have to be that fancy, but it had to have some sort of third-party evaluation. And from those conversations, it became clear we extracted principles around how you construct a more equitable and effective workforce development system. And for those in your audience who know research, you know, qualitative research is a little trickier than quantitative. But once you start hearing the same thing again and again, or you see patterns, you get a sense that you've kind of gotten it right. Yep. Yep. And but what you saw in a pattern sense is that many of these organizations did not define their employment opportunities through the skills required. Were they, again, creating barriers like college degree? No, these were the organizations that were doing a good job. Gotcha. So, gotcha. So, so the principles, may I just talk briefly about the principles in the book? Please do. Okay. So, so the sort of the foundational principles, if the goal is to create a more effective and equitable workforce development system, the foundational principles relate to people, right? The, the system has to be built to address the needs of the people it's designed to serve. That sounds really obvious, right? but unfortunately, it isn't always obvious. And because the needs of people in the in the uh, labor market are so broad, from the from the justice involved young adult who needs executive skill development to the incumbent worker who, who needs reskilling, the system has to be built to address the needs of a wide range of people, and therefore must include a wide range of organizations who help skill those people, which is why I think there's such a profound role for the sector to play in either training 
or actually getting people ready so that they can participate in training programs. So those are the people-related principles. Then we found that effective programs, while they may train against different occupations, they do certain things similarly, like they personalize their interventions. I won't go into the details, Pat, and you can ask me what, what is more, sure. in, what's interesting. They provide wraparound services to the people that are in their programs. They do what's called contextualized learning. So adults want to get a job quickly. However, some of them need basic math and reading, or some of them need English as a second language. But if you force them to do adult basic ed or ESL first, that's going to demotivate them because it's more time when they're not being trained for a job. Yep. So many organizations combine the two things. And then most of the effective organizations do what we call provide bridges to employment, internships, apprenticeships, relationships with employers. So those are the principles that relate to programs. And then at the systems level, using skills as currency, I'll go into any that you're interested in uh, being transparent and focusing on performance uh, and collaborating. And then the fourth one is advocating for changes in communities. But I think that's a little beyond our scope. Sure. So but that's I love, the goal. Phew. I love it. Love it. Thank you for the summary and the overview. And in fact, yes, I would like to unpack it a little bit. But what I love about it in particular is you, you are, I guess, looking at both sides of this equation in a sense that employers need to, to kind of reconsider how they um, acquire uh, and attract talent and make or eliminate barriers for that employment. And you're, you're looking at the other side for those seeking employment. How do we provide them with the skills, training, and so forth? And it seems to me, Kate, nonprofits can play a part in both sides. They can be better employers or perhaps more equitable in their hiring. And many of them, I guess, as you know, uh, provide this kind of training. So would you agree there's kind of relevance on both sides there? Absolutely. But, and I think that, Pat, one of the things that we're really strong proponents of is that business and nonprofits and colleges work together. Because if there's communication between businesses and the organizations that train potential employees, you're going to have training that meets the needs of employers Likewise, you're going to have curriculum at colleges or community colleges that meets the needs of employers. And when it's not working, there's a feedback loop, which right. is really important. And the other thing, uh, I'm going to try to get off my soapbox, but it's really <laughs> hard once I get up here. That's it's all right. Um, you know, we have to think really broadly about what skills mean. So, so as I, as I alluded to, you can tr give someone occupational training, but think about the person who's in the homeless center, who's coming out of the justice system, who's uh, has developmental disabilities. Right. That person may be a good worker, but they may not be ready for occupational training. There's a real role for social service organizations to help them get ready in terms of building their, whether it's their executive skills or their job readiness skills so that they can even participate in, in occupational training. But that gets back to your point of the collaboration. So That's again, right. my, my organization may not be 
qualified to do all of that training. But if I'm in conjunction with my community college, right, or other agencies across town, uh, we might find a path forward for many of these people that otherwise wouldn't exist if we only operated in isolation. Absolutely, categorically. Well, are there certain things, again, I'm struck by many pieces of advice you offer, but if I'm a nonprofit leader, is among the things I could do to, to move in the right direction to reevaluate my job descriptions, especially when I'm posting them? I mean, again, I go back to your example of the college degree, which I think is a default kind of uh, you know, qualification. Is that among the things you might suggest for uh, leaders of organizations to reconsider? Yes, absolutely. But I, I don't know specifically the process that IBM went through. I just know they literally went through all of their job descriptions to determine which they thought needed um, uh, a college degree and which didn't. They also, and, and some organizations are doing this, but it may be beyond the scope of what a smaller nonprofit can do is they they took a hard look at the skills that they were articulating and we did used again now I'm out of my I'm I'm out of my what you call it <laughs> a, a depth here. That's all uh, right. They, they used um, artificial intelligence and, and there are a whole bunch of uh, organizations that do this and look at job descriptions they look at job postings and they and they really identify skill clusters that go together that may or may not require a college degree yeah well put and not to beat up in our friends i i worked in higher ed for 10 years but i i often talk to leaders who say you know what my my even my graduate degree really doesn't apply <laughs> to the work i'm doing you know i learned it on the job and and it it strikes me, Kate, to your earlier advice about uh, the use of internships and apprenticeships. And I think there's enormous potential in the nonprofit sector to consider those types of programs, which, again, to me, would represent an opportunity because I'm not going to require you to have all the degree requirements to intern or apprentice with me. And maybe that could be a win-win. Well, it's a win-win because it does two things. One, it exposes the individual to the environment. So they begin to build sort of career readiness skills. It's a way of building skills for them in an occupation or functional area. And then, of course, it's a, it's a way for the nonprofit not just to take advantage of talent, but to actually think about what kind of talent really makes a difference. Yes. That's, well, again, I, I think this is fantastic and food for thought for our listeners who are ultimately, you know, have to consider the HR components of their entire organization. And I hope this will shake them up a little bit because I think many of us, of course, our head is down. We have to focus on what we got to get done tomorrow, but this invites us to rethink the way we, uh, I think, take on employment. Yeah, and I, you know, Patton, it just what you said, it, it's, it's one of my um, sadnesses for the sector, which is, and it's why this Harvard program for me was such, we, we so, we are running all the time that we so rarely get to step back and think. Good point. And, you know, and I always have said, you sometimes hear people say, well, nonprofits don't do this and they don't do that. 
I don't think it's a capability problem. I think it's a bandwidth problem yes. in the capacity, sector. right? Their yeah, capacity you is. Betcha. Well, I'll invite you to get back on your soapbox for a moment as you think about many things you cover in the book. But is there anything else kind of on the policy side or what frustrates you maybe? Are there things that need to change for some of these principles to actually you know, come to fruition? So I think... Here, it, I, I'm. I'm also when I'm when I'm not on the soapbox. I'm also a Pollyanna. I actually think that we're at a very good point for having these changes come to fruition. Number one, because of the situation in the labor market. Number two, I think there is an increasing willingness and conversation around the relative importance of degrees versus skills. Uh, I do think there are changes that we need to see in terms of uh, policy at the federal, state, and local level. So workforce development boards right now, they're, they're very important, but wow, there's a lot of focus on what's called one-stop shopping as opposed to, to um, um, uh, training. We have a tendency perhaps to pay for the wrong things. Uh, right. Your audience knows this well. We, we pay for outputs and not outcomes. There's a big irony in the workforce uh, system where, you know, they're, again, excuse my language, uh, 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 trainers are paid for butts and seats. Yep, but right. if someone can actually get a really good job before graduating for the program, that shouldn't ding the program. That should be considered a good thing. So they're there are things like that. The other, I hold out hope. <clears throat> have, you, uh, have you heard of the Good, Good Jobs Challenge? So it's a new program uh, by the uh, Department of Commerce, and it's around uh, workforce development. Uh, it's a, a half billion dollar program. The RFPs went out, they're back in, and it's asking organizations in a region to collaborate across sectors to improve their workforce development efforts. Right. And it's, it makes me really optimistic. Well, thank you for that balanced attack or balanced approach, I guess, as you on the soapbox, <laughs> you, you're not just bringing critiques of the sector. You do see optimism and I'm glad. And I, you know, I guess there's lots of good advice. And again, as I encourage our listeners to be thought leaders in all aspects of nonprofit leadership, they need to pay attention to this and, in fact, I guess in addition to your advice to step back, which I think is good for anybody to be able to step back and think strategically, is there any other final advice, Kate, you would offer someone who's in nonprofit leadership or pondering nonprofit leadership that you might add to what you've already shared? Yeah, there are actually there are a couple of things. And the advice I would give depends on where someone is in their career I think that the world of data analytics is increasingly important. So as I mentioned, it creates a foundation for understanding what's happening in one's community and bringing together all the different pieces. Um, I also think that it's becoming increasingly important um, so a number of the really strong organizations that we, worked with have developed early warning systems. So they understand the behaviors of their participants 
And there are certain things that constitute a red flag. And if they see one of those flags, they know there's a potential for that person to job, drop out of the program. And so they intervene before that happens. That I think is increasingly important. Uh, so the data, and then the other, I mean, I, the other piece is beginning to become a little bit more familiar with brain and behavioral science. Interesting. And I think yeah. that's really important in dealing with certain populations. For someone at the beginning of their career, sure. Patty, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to actually start out in business and get some <laughs> grounding. Right. This is Kate personalizing, yeah, okay. retrofitting her own career, but, right. but getting some grounding in functional skills so that you can bring those and, and marry them with the glory of the mission of an organization. I also, to really young uh, people who are thinking about um, a career in this, the social sector, I also sometimes say, think about going with a larger organization at first, because they'll have the infrastructure to teach you. And then, then if you want to be at a smaller organization, doing that afterwards. But those are kind of my bits of advice. Great advice, in fact, and on multiple levels and uh, applicable to leaders on any part, either early or later in their journey. And for all that, Kate, I'm grateful. Uh, of course, as you knew uh, was coming, I have one parting gift to request. Of course, we're going to lift up the wonderful work you've done through your books, but might there be another book or two that you would recommend or maybe that was meaningful to you along the way? Yeah, I, I, there is actually a book that I, there are many books that, that have been meaningful to me, but we're going to put fiction aside for a moment. <laughs> right. uh, there is a woman named Jennifer Eberhardt, and she is a professor at Stanford. And I guess it's about a few years old now. Uh, she wrote a book called Bias, and it's it looks at implicit bias. And it was a really powerful articulation of the issues that so many of us face um, in, in our lives today. And, and I thought she did a great job of explaining things and helping us uh, stand back and look at our own selves and understand what others are doing and why they might be doing it. That's a fantastic recommendation. I'm happy to add it to the wish list for this podcast. And I hope our listeners will consider that as well as, of course, Growing Fairly itself as an addition to the bookshelf for those that are listening right now. Uh, Kate, this has been fantastic. Where can people go to learn more about you and the great work you continue to do? I think if you go to Brookings, Brookings published Growing Fairly, Brookings, uh, uh, Growing Fairly would be the place to go. Absolutely. We will lift that up in the show notes and, and encourage people to follow your work. And again, Kate, thank you for joining me on the path. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kate as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your journey but also help your nonprofit organization reconsider how it looks at skilling and workforce development. Don't forget to check out the show notes 
They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Kate and how to get a copy of the book, Growing Fairly. Remember, this is episode number 157. As always, please share this episode with just one other person on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast. Go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see the follow button. And that will allow you to connect to this podcast through any of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, check out the episodes button at the top of the same page. And you can scroll through thumbnails of any and all of our now 157 podcast conversations. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.